You know, if you're trying to do something innovative or creative or just impactful and emotional, you need to get people on board with the vision of what it'll be and also why it's important. Hey everyone and welcome to No Fat Cats, the podcast where we help high-performing creative teams get even better. I'm your host, Wesley Dean. This episode was recorded in Jerusalem. I had been, I was on a shoot with Nick Rogaki doing some filming and towards the end of our trip, we you know had a little bit of extra time before he had to go to the airport and I had to, to get going. Nick had been on my mind for a while as he does a great job of kind of standing in the gap as he definitely is very much a creative who, who works a lot with people who aren't necessarily, you know, traditional creatives. They're great at problem solving, great at what they do, but don't necessarily live in the, whether it's graphic design or video production or in, in a cr- traditional creative field. And so Nick does a great job of working with people to help them understand their goals, weed out bad ideas, and help just produce awesome content that is relevant and is done in a creative, energizing way. I know a lot of us at times have worked with people before and we just, we'll have this great idea. We'll have this this idea that's gonna be engaging, innovative, and, and we're sure it's gonna work, but then we pitch the idea, but we don't really do a good job communicating it or the, the timing wasn't right or the right people weren't on board and the idea just doesn't go anywhere. And so this episode is, is for people who wanna know how do you get people on board with with great ideas? How do you coach people? Because success isn't you just being able to execute that idea, but it's you being able to get those you're working with on board with you and your exciting idea. And in this episode, we go through that. We talk through when is the best time to be to bring in an idea? Do you build that trust over time and gradually come up with some ideas? Or should you brand yourself from the very beginning as someone who is going to come in and bring these new ideas and that's what you're being brought on to, to to do and you, things could go either way but it's important to kind of think through your strategy before going into things so you have a theory for how you're going to be able to approach uh, a process and how you're going to help bring people on board get them excited and be able to produce some amazing content so without further ado here's the interview i recorded with nick in jerusalem hey nick thanks so much for being on the podcast i know uh, you know i've known you now for for several years and anytime we have the chance to work together it's always i love about the fact that you can take a project and I don't have to deal with explaining kind of the creative side to people who are who are not creative because I definitely have had that struggle before where you know you're you're working with people and you know they just don't get it but you you get it. And so thanks <laughs> thanks thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. And and thanks for for uh telling me I get it. It's good to hear. Yeah, no. I mean it's it's one of those things where I've definitely had those struggles where you are sitting down you're trying to explain the fact of you know, we're, we're producing a video here and, you know, we're trying to include emotion and we're trying to, you know, tell a story and, and people automatically jump to the like facts. And so I'm not sure if you probably run into that too. And, oh, well, let's talk about this. And you're like, no, like that's, that's not the best, best format for, for, for doing like a video or I'm sure you probably get this with graphics too, where, Hey, let's, let's put everything on the page. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I just wanted to see like, how did you kind of get started first off in the kind of the creative field? I know you've had number of career um, kind of moves, strategic moves, but we'd love to hear how did you kind of first get into that that process? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I've, I like to joke around that I'm sort of a master of none because uh, I've done a lot of different things. I, I started off thinking I was going to go into international affairs work. Uh, I was a political science major when I was in college. Um, I ended up working as, a, as an EMT while I was going through school. My first job was working as an archaeologist. Yeah, where, where did you work as an archaeologist? I, I worked for the New York State Museum, and I did it across. Um, we, I basically, I was on the road, 
you know, digging in the dirt five days a week for about three years. Domestically in the U.S.? Yeah. 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 I was working for the New York State Museum. So I was working all across New York, which was cool. We were everywhere from, you know, New York City up through kind of Nowhereville. Um, There's a lot of those in upstate New York. As hey, someone who, let's, let's be cool. As let's someone cool. who has spent like graduated from high school and college in upstate New York, western New York, as I would call it. Yeah, there there are a lot of those uh, towns. I'm, I'm <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm glad we call it West New York. Feels better. But uh, even then, when I was you know doing the archaeology thing, I was doing artifact illustration. You know, there was always kind of an artistic element to that stuff. So you were actually the one drawing. I was digging, but I was also yeah, I was doing all of these sort of science illustration of the artifacts we were pulling out of the ground, right? So that way, if anything was uh, destroyed later on or if anything was lost, we'd have a record of it. And also, it makes it easier to com- compare, you know, relics one to another, so to speak, artifacts one to another. So, so I do have to ask there, so, so what was the advantage of drawing versus just, like, taking a picture? Well, the idea is that when you're, when you're examining it and drawing it, you can, you can note specific, say, angles to a piece like let's say we're talking about a point right um you can note where there's flaking on a on a uh what i think people think of as an arrowhead but we just call points you can note that in illustration in a way that sometimes pictures aren't able to capture especially when you're dealing with something with multiple angles with the wrong lighting angles disappear or something seems white or or discolored when in fact it's just light reflecting off it. It just it allows you to be more detailed in what you're trying to. Okay, so you actually just make notes of of what it was. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Anytime you've seen like you know what stippling is when they just use dots, lots and lots of dots to illustrate like shades and oh, color yeah. change. Um, that's basically what they what's primarily used is pointillism or stippling. Yeah, it's uh, you've seen it in every every science book you've ever opened since you were a little kid. It's it's sort of a tried and true method illustration. It's not necessarily my artistic style, but it's what was called for. And I think broadly, it's just it's just indicative that even early on, anywhere I was working, I was always kind of taking on the artistic elements. You know, when I um, uh, when I went to grad school and started working uh, initially doing um, international security work and then working for advocacy organizations and nonprofits. Again, whenever there was, uh, we wanted an infographic made or we needed a, a short video done, if I had the skill sets, I would often just end up doing it myself, either sometimes because of a lack of budget, but more frequently because we just weren't, we weren't getting the material that we wanted. We weren't getting the product that we wanted from the people that we'd bring on to do it. And you were basically like, I could do this better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of. Like, uh, uh, not to say that, like, I had a, better skill set than they did, but just that I have a foot in both worlds. You know, I, I, I was working on the policy stuff. I was in the office. I understood what they were trying to get at, you know, but I was raised on comic books and, you know, movies and I'm a, a huge consumer of all media. And so I, I, I think without realizing it, I picked up a lot of, I picked up a lot of storytelling, uh, skill sets, you know, growing up and traveling a lot and, communicating in a lot of different across a lot of different cultures you realize that there are just some things that are universal in the way that we take in information in the way that we change our minds in the way that people express opinions and the way that stuff sticks with us you know um and uh yeah and so it just typically i often just found myself kind of falling into these spaces where i'd end up you know being the point person on creative projects or producing you know small graphic projects here and there and i think that goes to show that Two, I think there's a lot of people who are in the creative space who are stuck between like, what do I 
what do I kind of focus on? And they're kind of torn between both worlds in some ways. Like, oh, I love this aspect, the like international relations or the political science, but I also enjoy this creative outlet. And I think there's a lot of power when you can get good at both of those, and you have a you can have a really unique skill set that makes you extremely valuable. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that what often what makes a career for people is is sort of uh, running on the treadmill of expertise. I think, you know, particularly for, for stuff like international affairs or political science, I think it's true of most most professions that you start doing something and there's new technologies that are happening and you're trying to keep keep up with all the new technologies or there's breaking news or there's different dynamics happening, you know, overseas or politically. And you could be an expert on, on a, a topic or a region. And if you if you disappear for two years and try to come back, you're not an expert anymore, you know? Have to, have to stay up to date, yeah. You know? Yeah, and I, I think that uh, to some degree, I guess I've sort of embraced the idea that I'm going to forego my expertise. I'm not going to try to uh, to be an expert on global security. I'm not going to try to advance through the you know academic rigor of of archaeology. And instead, I'm just going to try to find those those central elements that hold true, sort of across the field or across all fields, and and do the same with communication. And try to bridge that gap, I guess. I, I have to say, you know, as far as origin, my my wife, who we met and we got engaged six months later, we were married two months after that. And uh, she's been absolutely fantastic, but she, she's been a filmmaker her entire life. She grew up as an artist. She got her bachelor's in fine art. She became a, a wildlife conservation filmmaker. And we kind of met at this period where she was she – was, trying to break in in a big way. She was trying to go from being somebody who made the occasional conservation film, but mostly shot for clients to pay the bills and transition into somebody who was known as a conservation filmmaker. And that was how she paid the bills. And we started a production company together um, when we were living in Southeast Asia is that Oak and Coral? Did you uh, Coral and Oak? Yeah, Coral yeah, yeah. Oak. And and w- we started this production company, Coral and Oak Studios, together. Since doing that, we it's just been an incredible partnership because she has this expertise. She's a great shooter. She's a great editor. She understands story, um, and that's sort of where the two of us meet in the middle. Is that I I understand story as well, but I've got a little bit more of a kind of a strategic approach to to production and storytelling. And together, we've over the last six years we've really learned from one another and and built on each other's strengths to the point now where I wouldn't say we're interchangeable because she's a much better shooter than I am. But you can you can step in for each other if you need to. Yeah, and, and we also find ourselves when we're on when we're on calls or working on projects where I, I, if I'm giving advice and Katie comes in my wife comes in an hour later and she hears the advice that I gave, she said, Oh, I would have done the exact same thing. And vice versa. And I think that that was where I, I kind of really cut my teeth over the course of a year, sort of standing this production company up and then continuing to work on the side, you know, because this is largely a side gig for me. Doing stuff for Coral and Oak has been um, a great way to, to move from just somebody who kind of intuitively understands storytelling to being somebody who, in practical life, understands what that entails on the filmmaking side, what that entails a storyboarding, scripting, editing, stuff that I had a a hint of before. I I think I've got a deep enough understanding of now that, that it's only made me better in both aspects, you know, both trying to translate concepts 
from a, a very wonky, non-creative world into a creative world, I guess. Yeah, and you definitely have to understand, you know, those aspects, uh, have a really good, solid grasp of them, even if you're not doing them every single day to be able to communicate it. Because it's really hard for me trying to explain to someone, oh, we need to do this process and scripting. And, and if they've never done it before, they just, like, they, just, they don't really get it. And you can try, but it really helps someone to go through the process at least once for them to say, oh, I finally get, you know, what we need to do. There's also like a creative intolerance, I feel like, among people who don't work in creative fields. You know, there, there's there's this assumption that if they just scream louder or pay more money, it'll get done faster or better. And, you know, that's not, that's not, not, not how that case. works. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I think anybody who's dealing with creative, anybody who's, who's producing something or even managing a, a creative project, even if they have no creative background, if you don't know how long it's going to take, if, you, if, you, if you're not sure what what's required of it, or if you're coming in with late last minute edits, assume that people are going to need more time. Be human with the person you're dealing with, right? Yeah. Because whenever you're partnering with anybody, any relationship is always better when you're more compassionate and you try to be more considerate of their time. And I, I think that one of the biggest things that are, it's hard to manage is uh, people without any any real creative experience or people who just broadly aren't very creative, which yep. those people exist. I think a little bit of compassion goes a long way to getting a better product. So that so you started the Coral Noak, and um, but then I know you, you took kind of a little bit of a side break when it came to your current job. What what was that jump? And in terms of getting into working with the U.S. Institute of Peace, and uh, how did that? But then you later came back to the creative space. So what was that journey like? And how did did that help in terms of building trust and connections? And what just what was that like? I went from having uh, this this job, I guess, this this kind of self-created, self-actualized position uh, in a production company that my wife and I built, to going back to the international affairs, international policy community. And I honestly think in, in retrospect that it was uh, a little bit of uh, out of insecurity to some degree. I think imposter syndrome is a very real thing. And Katie and I were making, we were making films, we were traveling, I think we shot in like 10 countries or so over the course of the year while we were working with this. That's a busy year. Yeah, over the course of the year while we were getting this production company off the ground. And uh, one of the films that we did um, called Pangolin, about an endangered species, did really well. It, it ended up winning all kinds of awards and, and um, doing very well in the, in, the, in the conservation film festival circuit. But I think that there were two things at play. One... It's really hard being a freelancer, and it's doubly hard if both both of you are freelancers. Both of you are freelancers. Uh, so we needed some health insurance. You know, we needed we needed a secure anchor. And so um, my wife had been freelancer entire life. So it's we never really talked about it, but it kind of felt like I felt like well, I got to get I got to get back to the real world, right? I think that being able to make a living creatively just felt like such a, a fantasy luxury. It felt like it wasn't something that I that I could have. Right, it doesn't it didn't feel like something that I could actually, I could love the work that I'm doing and make money. It felt insane to me. I guess I felt like that'd be cheating or something. Like that. Yeah, yeah, like I felt like I was cheating can't, the can't system. Can't really happen, right? <laughs> yeah, and um, and the other thing was that you know this is I had gone to you know grad school to work on this. I had you know several years of experience working in the international affairs field. Um, I mean, I was I was over a hundred thousand dollars in student debt doing yeah. this, so I, I you know, You're like I, should I should probably continue it, probably keep doing it, which is a dumb reason to do anything. But uh, I went ahead and I applied for a position at the U.S. Institute of Peace, among a, a couple of others, kind of in an early effort to. At that time, we were living in the Philippines to leave the Philippines and and head back to to the states. 
And I got the position, which was fantastic, working in the front office, managing a lot of a lot of strategic uh, top level stuff at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, they had a new president who just came in, uh, and she was, um, I think, taking stock of everything about the institute. Um, over the first six eight months that I was there, it was largely fact finding and figuring out the state of the institute, and then and then her deciding what she wanted to change and adjust and tweak and you know how she wanted to I guess adjust the direction of the institute and so I was there for all of that you know I was kind of in the front lines for for seeing how all these decisions were being made and what they wanted to do largely being able to have uh, casual good relationships with all of the senior leadership in the institute which is I mean it's a rather large organization I think they have upwards of 200 employees they're operating in 20 some odd countries so having that kind of access is often hard especially when you know at this stage in my career I'd be considered you know junior or early like mid-level career and I wouldn't be privy to the kind of meetings that I was in otherwise if I yeah. weren't in this position um so in that sense it was it was good cuz I I got some insight into how everybody operated and what priorities were and then did you see that when it came to be able to make change, you know, at least from the presidential level, did you find that changes tend to happen more, you know, like a year afterwards in terms of at, into things or was it a little bit of look and feel? Because I think, too, there's a good question I'm really curious of from the from the creative perspective is when you're trying to push something new or, or innovative, does it either happen have to happen at the very beginning or is there a natural progress between build a relationship, help people with their, their issues, and then gradually start implementing like, Hey, here are some other things to think about. Or do you just wait until much, much later, later down the road? So I would answer that not exclusively from my experience at USIP, yeah, but just generally pulling you know, on from job kind of career wise. Yeah. It seems to me there are two ways that you can, that you can get to good, innovative, creative content. Either one, you you come in as a as a trusted ally. You know what I mean. Yep. You come in and people know that you're good at your job and they've had experiences with you in the past, and you you're basically banking on that money that the, those relationships, that house money, I guess, the social so, capital. Yeah, that's yeah, that social capital, so that they'll trust you and 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 trust what you're what you're offering and suggesting. I think the other way is to come in uh, sort of as a contractor come in because of your expertise. So being brought in because we're hiring an external person because we trust them. I, th I think the second, the latter one is easier to operate in, but harder to collaborate. So if I find that like the best, at least in my experience, some of the best projects I've worked on have worked well because we've, I've had a small group of of collaborators and maybe they're not all incredibly creative, but it's it stays as a small enough crowd that, we aren't trying to build compromise. We're trying to build something innovative, so a creative product, something that we're all excited about. And when I already have relationships with people, it becomes a lot easier to engage and go back and forth and and be be honest in that creative process and and bounce ideas off one another that maybe don't work, that maybe are bad, but start a good conversation. I think when you come in as a contractor, it's a lot harder because you need to continue to legitimize your expertise. But frankly, not knowing what you're doing or not being sure what the next step is and being open to talking about that and and troubleshoot, I think is a central element to producing something that's worthwhile. So, you know, there's pros and cons to both, but I think the balance is always, 
if you can, trying to build a good relationship with your collaborators early, trying to create a, a culture of collaboration and a, a place that feels, I don't want to say safe space, but I want to say a place that feels comfortable enough for people to offer bad ideas, for everybody to feel like it's okay to 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 fail at least in the early production early stages, stages so yeah. that you can succeed on the back end, right? No, definitely. Well, because the one thing I've noticed, especially too, when after a while of observing people who are in kind of that communication director space and, you know, whether it's communications director or creative director or, you know, whatever it is, marketing director, like there, there's oftentimes people in that space and they'll have interesting ideas that they bring to the table, but at times they either don't have like the clout to be able to weigh in to get like the president or their boss or other VPs or, or other directors to kind of get them on board. And so I'd, at times I've definitely seen people try to struggle with trying to do something innovative, but having to convince their broader, like their broader bosses or colleagues that, Hey, we should actually do something that's fun and innovative. And instead it's kind of goes back to like, well, let's just do what the boss is expecting. Maintain the status Maintain quo. Maintain the status quo. And, and I think it's kind of, tr- it's tough because you can't really come in like guns blazing uh, and expect to succeed at, at more of like, let's say, a VP position or even if it's just underneath. But I think there are ways of over time kind of weighing, weighing like convincing people to like get, the, get them to be innovative versus breaking away from the status quo. And But, but the, what I'm trying to figure out is do you have to either come in from the beginning as, hey, I'm the expert in this and you're bringing me on to do innovation in this area? Or can you come in – because people always – they bring people on to usually help put out fires and, oh, we need this right now. We need this right now. And the the urgent isn't always the most innovative. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, when people come to you with the, the urgent, how do you, do you turn that into the innovative or do you have to come with the innovative from the very beginning? I mean, and I think this comes probably from my having been in an ambulance a little bit when I was younger. As an EMT. As, as an, yeah, not as a patient. That it's never a bad idea to just slow things down. To There's a difference between something that's urgent and something that's an emergency. And I think that frequently in, in professional settings, we confuse those. You know, ego's on the line, promotions are on the line, you know. All of a sudden then, when that's online, everything becomes, you every, know. <laughs> Everything feels like an emergency. And, it, you know, it's not. Things can be urgent, but that's all the more reason to stop and try to make slow, smart decisions so that everything else can run a lot faster afterwards. So I think typically, I think the, I think the best, the best creative directors are able to pause, slow something down and try to, uh, try to identify what exactly you're trying to achieve, what exactly your goal is with whatever you're making and then figure out, you know, what's, what's the best way to do this. And then how are we confined by reality? I think that if you start from a position of we can only do this because these are only resources, well, you're in, you're inherently accepting a certain amount of failure, and you're inherently starting you're starting from your worst your worst case. Yeah, I mean, I, we're always in negotiation with ourselves. I think if you try to if if you start a creative process by assuming all the things that you can't do with it, well, then you've already lost your own negotiation. And that's not to say that that you know if I've got a week to turn around a a, a, sh- a short form video yeah. that that I should expect to include you know uh, original composed music and animation, <laughs> yes. but I, I think it I think it should allow you to stop and and know why you're saying no to that as opposed to we don't have the time or budget. You can say well we don't have the time 
you know, but there, we do have a gifted animator that we've worked with before. Maybe we could include animated titles on the front end or, you know, we don't have a composer who can do original music, but can we repurpose something because we're trying to get this very specific feeling and some previously recorded music could check that box, right? It's it's all about it's all about problem solving, I guess. Yes. So I'm really curious to know how how you actually brought up the the EMT thing. So were there examples actually as an EMT where it seemed like an an emergency, but you did need to stop and and pause for a little bit? I mean, and so this is this is kind of the thing. I, I think the best creative the best creative teams are good because they've been together for a while. Um, I think that speaks to trust a little bit, but I think that also speaks to the same principle behind behind training that you get in in any emergency service any first responder service you know if if somebody if somebody's having a heart attack and you're called on the scene as an EMT you don't have to stop and think what do we do yeah. you know how you react to a heart attack right yes if you end up on the scene of an accident and somebody's lying there unconscious, you may not know why, but you know the steps you need to go through to figure out why. You know, you know how to triage a patient. You know how to how to try to assess a patient and figure out, you know, are there broken balloons? Where where's blood coming from? Are they conscious? You know, uh, and you know the order to go through and, and why that's important. I think when you have an emergency, an emergency, an urgent creative matter to address, if, if you're allowed to do that with your creative team, with your communications team exclusively, I think it tends to work better because everybody knows how you, how you assess the issue. Everybody can, has a similar feeling about what you need to triage first. I think where it gets hard is when you have other members of your organization come in and weigh in because then they're going by gut instinct or they're going by what their own priorities are within their team or within their, their, um, their corner of the organization. And that ends up coloring the response quite a bit. And particularly when you're dealing with complex dynamics across multiple teams, it's even harder because now you're not negotiating what, what do we need to do to get this project off the ground or to get this project turned around. Now you're also negotiating the values that this project represents. You're negotiating whose views are going to be in there. Everybody needs to see themselves recognized in the project. So you're not making, you're not making something that is meant to communicate to your audience anymore. You're making something where the process is almost more important than the end product because everybody's weighing in and everybody's participating in many cases for the first time on a topic like this. And, and that's hard. You know, I think when you, when you lose sight of the product in favor of the process is where you lose good content. And I, I think every, every, anybody who's worked on, on creative, uh, especially freelancers have experienced that. Yeah. So you're saying that people kind of lose, lose focus of what, what the end goal is. Um, and get kind of sucked into the just trying to make things happen. Yeah, I mean, not trying to make things happen per se, but trying to feel heard, trying to feel like their feedback is is represented in the final product, or agonizing over what their boss might think, who's maybe not in the meeting, but who ultimately is going to care about the final product. Oh. Or even worse, a boss who does care about the final product, but's too busy to be involved until the, the final end. edit, right? <laughs> And then they start throwing grenades and, and asking questions and, and making suggestions that 
have probably already been thought out earlier on, but because they weren't in the room, it all has to be relitigated. And, oh. that, and that's, I mean, that's, I feel like that's death for anything innovative and definitely death for a good timeline, you know, for getting stuff done on time. Yeah, no, I think we've definitely both been there many times. So in some ways, it's not so much getting bogged down with the process, but it's more of having a process that actually isn't kind of like well-defined and uh, in your process kind of gets, you know, carjacked in the middle of, of leading to the final product. Yeah, I definitely think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is just general risk aversion, you know? Yeah, how do you combat risk aversion? It's is a it little small successes or I think it's a little bit of building trust. I think if you've got a track record of small successes that helps to to speak to the trust building. I think that you need to get people excited and about about what you're doing. You know, if you're trying to do something innovative or creative or just impactful and emotional, you need to get people on board with the with the vision of what it'll be and also why it's important. I, I find I find the latter is easier to do. I find trying to explain to people why making a video that's that tugs on heartstrings and speaks to people's emotions is easy to explain because it, it speaks to our human experience, you know? I, I don't I don't attend a lecture and then leave the lecture determined to change the world. But I've definitely had conversations with people who have an amazing story to tell or who, who give me insight into a part of the world I never realized existed, and it fundamentally changes my worldview. And everybody's had that experience. You know, ev- Everyone, yeah. Everybody does. And so I, th- I think whenever, whenever we're making anything creative, we're doing it to try to change minds or motivate people to do something. And, and so trying to get people to buy in on, on an emotional journey or on a character-driven piece, it's it's an easy concept to get people to sign on with. I think the problem is trying to keep people accountable to what they agree to, right? What they agree to do, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I I might say, let's do a character-driven piece about this topic. And then, while working with the experts on that video, the, the, the stakeholders on that video, they know so much about that topic that, if we don't have every little bit of nuance, they start to panic. Yeah, they start they, to, we they need start, to include this and this. Yeah, yeah. And how will they understand unless we go into these details and add these statistics? And it's hard because uh, on some level, they're holding you accountable to making sure that you're telling an honest story. But you need to hold them accountable or at least protect them, I guess, from their worst instincts. Because anytime we're, we're trying something new for the first time, we want to swim back to a familiar shore, right? And if you're non-creative, that familiar sure will be hey let's include all the facts and all the the information well and and i don't like to i mean like again some people are just straight up not very creative (laughs) but the vast majority of people that i work with are creative and they just haven't had an opportunity to explore that outlet they are creative but they've been working in in jobs so long that haven't given them that opportunity or they or they paid a, a a heavy price at some point in their career when they went off on a limb and they're less inclined to do that I think that when you're in a collaborate when you're collaborating with people, you can get people to engage with their own creativity and and get excited by products projects and buy in. I th- I think the only the only really dangerous part of trying to get trying to get people creative and involved in something is sometimes they'll like go overboard, you know what I mean? Yeah. They'll they'll then imagine that they want some grand vision that's impossible to realize and um, or they become kind of dictatorial about it, you know? Well, no, we, we, 
this is what we want. This is what we agreed on. This is what we're going to get. This is, this is what my vision is. And, and, and it's hard to say, but situations are changing. You got to be flexible. You have to be flexible. You don't really have a budget for that or we could have done that, but that we needed to know that four weeks ago kind of thing. And I think that that's where the practical, the practical aspect comes in. I mean, I, I think the, the best creative directors are ones that, have some working technical knowledge that have an idea about what it takes. It's like any good boss. Any good boss understands what your what your job requires and how much work goes into it, right? Yeah. It allows them to be humane and reasonable with you. It allows them to figure out what accurate timelines are, you know? It allows them to understand what's possible and what's not possible. It doesn't mean they need to know all the all every aspect of your job. They don't need to be able to do it, but they need to understand what goes into it. And with the creative field, I think what's hard is so many people need creative at some point in their job, but very few of them have touched that in any real meaningful way. But we all feel like we've touched it. We've all watched television. We've all saw an infographic. We've all, you know, shared a a short video, you know, we've all done that. And because we, because we've interacted with media, we feel like we understand what goes into creating good media. Which is two, two very different things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's. Uh, we were talking about this earlier. It's the Dunning Kruger effect. the The less you know about a topic, the more confident you are in your opinion about that. And this is one of those things where I th- I think it's it's hard to to freelance with, and and hard to work as in house creative on because everybody knows just enough to be dangerous. Yep. <laughs> right. But not so much that they're highly effective. And and that's where trying to bridge that gap comes, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. And what about on the on the graphic design? I know you definitely have a awesome style. Do you feel find out is it that same problem when people come to you with, Hey, we need this designed? Is it a lot of the same same issues too? Um, in terms of people having expectations or not really knowing what they want? I mean uh, and you've you've done animation, so it's it's a kind of a similar take. I think video is a lot easier than illustration. Uh, I mean, because graphic design is a is a big world and one that I'm not <clears throat> entirely an expert at. Again, kind of that master of none. Which but you, I'm, which I'm, in your case, being being uh, understanding everything makes it a lot easier to work with because you you kind of get the steps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I definitely understand the stuff. I think I think where it's hard is like so with with video, you can stumble and and go back and make changes and it, it can be a pain and you can be grumbling all the way but there's not really a point of no return for for video you can kind of always go back and deal with that with animation and illustration it's so much harder because and and with i think with graphic design too though digital is obviously made it a little easier you're investing so much time in creating something wholly original. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not taking a picture of a tree. You're not filming a tree. You're like planting a tree, watering it, and then letting it grow. Let it grow. Right. Yep. And if, and if by the time you've got a full grown tree, somebody goes, Oh no, no, we didn't want a pine. We wanted a, a palm tree. Well, it's not as simple as just editing it out. You know, yeah. you need to redo this whole thing. And that's sort of what I think doing uh, infographics and illustration is, is like, is there's so much impo- animation. There's so much importance in the pre-production stage there that you you need to get that like 90% right before you commit to doing the graphics, before you commit to doing the illustration because that's that, that's man time, you know, man hours. That's a, that's a lot of work. 
that can't just be turned around. You know, it's not as simple as, well, let's put a beard on that person. Or can we make that woman a man? Yeah. It, it, that stuff is, that stuff takes a lot, a lot longer. And I think, I think because I've been doing a lot of illustration and, and graphics work, I've got a, a deeper appreciation for the importance of pre-production and a deeper appreciation for the fact that there are plenty of people who are creative who cannot possibly visualize what you're visualizing. They, can, they can't imagine what you're trying to explain to them. I think that I'm a fairly good communicator. I think that I turn a decent phrase. I lose people all the time when I'm trying to paint a picture for them of what something's going to look like or what a shot's going to be. And so, you know, storyboards and wireframes and mood boards, that stuff is so critical to helping not only get buy-in on a project you're working on, get people to take that risk to do something innovative, but frankly, just to communicate the idea. You can't can't use rely on words alone. Yeah, and 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 sometimes even trying to rely on on shared experiences. You know, experiences that we all know we've had. You know, uh, imagine going to a high school sporting event. Like everybody at some point went to a high school game of some kind or was in them. But everybody's got a drastic different idea of what that looks like, even when you try to reference it. So it, you you really do need to to find visual touchstones for like everything. People are creative, but they're not necessarily imaginative. If that if that's helpful, yeah. Or just even being on the same page as, uh, you know, you might c- communicate well, but it's important to be able to show concepts to to get people on board and buy in. Um, you know, completely outside of the digital world. Uh, a few months ago, I was working on a, on a kind of a wood project, and um, my wife Rachel and I were both trying to, to work on it. And uh, even though we both said, "Oh, we're, we're doing like something with mountains and and sun," and then but we realized that we both had something completely different on our minds, even though we were doing this, like this project, then we finally had to say, all right, let me kind of like make something up using like scrap pieces. And then I was like, Oh, or, or pull up examples on Pinterest. And like, Hey, this is what I'm thinking of. And like, Oh, that's not all what I was thinking of. Even though for a little bit, we thought we were on the same page about things. Uh, the reality was we had to get these examples out, these like almost a mood board, so to speak, uh, before we could go, go into this collaborative project. Well, and power dynamics matter a lot too, right? Like uh, a a husband and wife trying to do a project together and disagreeing on the vision is one thing, but um, a a boss and an employee having two radically different visions is, is a whole nother game. My, as much as I want my vision to be the one that matters more, and as much as that I might be convinced that I have the better idea or the better vision for what we're talking about, uh, ultimately, my boss's vision for what it is is the one that's going to come through. Yep. You know, unless you create a really positive collaborative experience where you can lay egos at the door, which is rare, you you really need to make sure that you're on the same page or be able to express your idea so clearly that it becomes your boss's idea. You know, express yep. it so clearly that, that that their vision is shared too. Yeah, we lose so much. And ironically. When we're talking about videos and, and graphics, we're talking about communication. And the thing that ultimately, I think, destroys those projects is bad communication. <laughs> bad communication. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's definitely very true. Where it's a, uh, it's you know, you might have an awesome idea in your brain that you're you're trying to accomplish, but when you can't communicate what it looks like, what the finished product looks like, whether it's through yeah, concept pieces or pitches or mood boards or anything like that. If they don't, if they're not able to catch the vision that you, that you have, it's just not going to happen. And and I think that's the, the kind of the challenge for people is find ways of 
communicating what you're trying to do and because you very well may have an idea that would be fabulous but if they're if you're just not on the same page it's just not going to happen well uh, the other thing you know i feel like a lot of the and i'm sure you've run into this too a lot of the vague feedback you'll get on projects you do is like uh make it make it edgier you know what does that mean (laughs) yeah and uh and i think what people are trying to say when they say that is Give me something innovative. Give me something original. Give me something that does something I haven't seen before. But the more voices, the more people that are involved in a project, I think the the more they wear down the edges, so to speak. You know, and it, it, it's it's I always endeavor to try to limit the number of people who are involved in a project, not because I want to I want to silence voices, um, but more because you you just can't you just can't do something with a clear vision that that feels meaningful. By committee, and I, I think you know, I think we intuitively see that a lot in in movies that come out. You know, I'm going to use the latest Star Wars as an example. You know, it it sounds like Disney was very invested in how this Star Wars movie was going to turn out. They had a lot of money riding on this franchise, um, and they had a lot of writers come on. They had a couple different directing switches. They didn't really have a clear vision coming into the third one what it was going to be, and the result was one of the most polarizing movies they've done in a while that that even fans of the franchise i think feel i don't this feels a little muddled this doesn't feel like it whole and conversely other videos other movies that we see by like art auteur directors um have a singular vision and it works because it's it's it, it, it works because it's coherent it works because it it takes risks and some of those risks maybe pay off and some maybe don't but it's it's consistent in its vision and I think the quickest way for an audience to tune out is to f- watch something that feels vanilla, watch something disjointed, that feels yeah. disjointed. Yeah. And that's what happens when you've got 10 people trying to argue about what something should be. If you have three people in a room, it becomes a lot easier to exchange ideas positively as opposed to build a kind of a tribalism in a boardroom <laughs> yeah. while everybody argues over you know, which, what something should be and sides develop and it, it, it gets ugly. And and then it poisons the well for all the other creative decisions you make during production and most importantly in post production. Yeah. So so I know at one point I think you said you try to stick to the was it the rule of three in terms of stakeholders? Yeah, yeah. I I and it's hard, you know, particularly as you go for a, a larger, a, a higher profile piece. You know, any I think any organization is going to want more people in the room. You know, because they're going to want their executives to sign off on it and. They're going to want their communication people involved, and then you have your own liaison, and people also come in and out of the process. So I always try to endeavor to get everybody to sign on to a process where we identify three key stakeholders. And if one of those stakeholders is is the CEO of an organization, well, if it's so important that the CEO has to sign off on it, it's it should be important enough that the CEO be there at these leverage points, at like these key decision points. So that way you you don't end up in a position where the CEO watches the thing on the very last edit or takes a look at the very last opportunity to change a, a graphic and they see it for the first time and react, you know, viscerally to it and want everything changed. You know, if they, if they, I think you're more likely to end up with people coming to the end of a product. They, they get to the end result of a, of a production they're working on and they look at the piece and and they they're happy with the product. I think it could be the exact same product at the end of at the end of a process. But if they were brought in at the very end, 
and they weren't there for the conversations about going with option A or option B or all mutually agreeing that, you know, it should be blue instead of green. If they're not part of that whole process, when they see that final product, they're going to react negatively to it. Whereas when they are part of that process and they see that final product, they're really happy. It's a good representation of what everyone is working towards. You not only feel like you have got buy-in and some ownership in it, but you also understand why it looks the way it looks and sounds the way it sounds because you were there for all of that. And so so kind of regardless of, of hierarchy in an organization, I, I always try to make sure that the stakeholders that get to decide what it is at the end of the day are there to help us figure out what it should look like in the beginning and be there when we've got edits and questions throughout. Yet, do you, do you have any suggestions on how, how do you loop people in when inevitably you know the CEO is going to want to sign off on it, and the, but the natural instinct isn't let's loop them in at the beginning. How do you do you have any advice on on how to convince people organizationally to to, to any like the CEO doesn't have to be there the whole time, but just like I said at the beginning, talking about goals, a few key checkpoints. How do, how do you do that? Any advice? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is you, you need to convince the people who work for them to ask which is kind of the biggest barrier. You know, people don't, it, your boss is always busy, you know, no matter what job no matter you're what, in. Yep. Yeah. And you don't want to take time from your boss. So I, I think what I try to do is, is emphasize that if you, you don't want to bother your boss because they're busy and you don't want to, you don't want to piss them off and make them angry that you're trying to take their time. Well, you're going to piss them off more if they end up looking at a project that you're responsible for. And they don't and not like it. They don't like <laughs> it. So, so yeah, get, get the time. And if it's a question of how much time, I, I don't think meetings ever need to be an hour long. You can always make them shorter. You can always prepare more so that you take up less time. And that's all stuff that we can mitigate. So just getting them to agree to be part of the process, that's, that's kind of the first step is, is we, you know, you pay now or you pay later by getting their involvement. So get pay, it now. pay now, pay now, get them involved. Um, the second one is try to, there's a lot of hang, hand wringing involved in production Try to find the points that actually matter. I mean, there are leverage points in in pre-production and 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 production post that that are more important than others. They don't need to be there to discuss all the various nuance or process or deadlines. They don't need to be there for that. But they should be there for the creative questions. They should be there when we're outlining a vision. They should be there when we're talking about who our key audiences are. You know, when we're talking about who we're trying to reach and what the messages are. Because that's that's ultimately what matters. And if they look at the product in the end and they say, well, I don't like it, you can say, yeah, but the audience that you wanted us to speak to will like it. Yeah, for these reasons. <laughs> yeah, for these reasons. And, and you were there for those conversations. And that makes all the difference. Because at the end of the day, you know, too often it, it feels like we're making products for the people who commission them, when in fact we're making products for the people that they're trying to reach. Yeah, and I think people can kind of forget that, especially when you're not in the space of continually reaching out to your, your the general public or your audience. Yeah, yeah. And also if you're trying, if you don't have your, your, your boss or the executive in the room during these key leverage points, you try to guess what they want. And... I mean, <laughs> that's, that's tough. Yeah, yeah. Th yeah, that way lies Good death. Luck. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so... Yeah, trying to convince you know convincing them to bring in bring in executive level or, or senior level um, decision makers is important, and then also trying to convince them that they don't need everybody in the room is the other big one, and that's when you and, know. And I'm curious there. Do you think is it is there value in having everyone in the room for initial like brainstorming ideas and and thought process, but then later on weeding out, or, or from the beginning don't have everyone? 
<sighs> you know, because <laughs> that's our it's, st- it's a little totalitarian of me. But yeah. my my answer my answer would be no. I mean, there's an argument to be made that you want to have everybody in the room. A bunch of people in the room, so that people feel some sort of buying into the process. They, even if they're not going to be involved in 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 the product moving forward and the production moving forward, uh, they had an opportunity to to voice their thoughts and ideas. Okay, yeah, I guess uh, you know. There's people argue that theory, and there are people with better better minds than I've thought about that. But for me, I, everybody is creative. Not everybody is talented, <laughs> and having a lot of people who are given an opportunity to be creative and voice their ideas enthusiastically, but have terrible ideas. I think it just, it just muddies the water a little bit. And also you have no idea where your, where your client or where your coworkers are going to go. So, you know, I've definitely been in, in, in meetings with, with clients where everybody's offering ideas and I'm going, Well, there's at least there's no way they're going to take that yeah, idea. That yeah. one's awful. And then I find out that like something about it appealed to somebody, and now that now that's the idea we're going with. You're like, oh no, yeah. And there's you end up with sort of a mob mentality behind it, where you end everybody ends up backing an idea that isn't a great fit. But there's thirty people in the room, and one bad idea ends up kind of either getting accepted by the boss, or everybody else falls in line, or it's the least bad of a bunch of ideas. And so even though nobody really likes it, it kind of becomes sort of a consensus, okay idea. And then you're not having a creative conversation anymore, right? Then it's a, it's, you're in, you're in a democratic vote, right? It's, it, it becomes political. People are, people are, they aren't talking about the merits of their ideas. Instead, they're, instead it's weighted by the personalities in the room and, you know, did, well, Joey's been having a hard couple of months at work where he really needs a win, you know? Like, <laughs> and you're like, no. Oh, well, cool, but that's... Can we help Joey some other way? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, what I try to do is... I like to try to find disparate voices who are, are kind of the best uh, or strongest representation of, of the the point of view that they're bringing to the table. So instead of having the entire finance team come in, maybe you bring in the one guy on finance that everybody thinks has, is, is thoughtful. Or if you're going to, if you need to have a, a room full of senior leadership sitting down and, and thinking through something, give me one who's in his thirties and give me one who's in their fifties and give me one who's switched careers recently and give me one who's been in, in the field forever because differing, backgrounds I think is more of a variety of backgrounds is more valuable than sheer numbers number so yeah so ideally you do want to try to have in those planning make sure get people who are going to have a variety of opinions but also are talented so that way you don't get stuck with um you know a bad idea being implemented yeah, I mean, to the degree you can, like, you want to you want to draft your team for taste. You want to find people who have good taste. They can be very differing taste, you know, but yeah, people who are thoughtful and ideally don't come to the table with a whole with with huge power dynamics at play. You know, people whose egos are bruised or people who are going to have to kowtow to another person in the room because you know, frankly, and this is the danger of having an executive in the room is if you don't create a collaborative space, then everybody's going to agree with whatever the executive says. And I think there are a lot of different ways that you can do that, um, either as a creative director or as um, uh, a contractor. 
but you trying to create an environment where it's we're building consensus here. There's no bad ideas. Let's talk some stuff out and talk about why they're good and why they're bad. And let's let's have an open space for a discussion. If you can set that tone, well, then you know a senior leader can weigh in, and everybody's not going to immediately agree and get in line. Yeah, um, they can respectfully disagree and and talk about the merits of it and that's what collaboration is it's respectful disagreement and trying to improve on one another's opinions there's a lot of yes ands yeah you know and i think that's where having kind of a deliberate brainstorming process can also help where it's like hey let's come up with ideas uh for this and not in the judging initially well yeah i I think i think the most important one of the most important parts of making a good product is not making products (laughs) you know like i think the most important about the most important element of good production is knowing when you don't want to make a piece. You know, if, if the deadline is too short, if the if the budget is too small, you know, if the idea is just bad. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about making a video and it's a visual medium, and then you tell me that people can't be on camera because they're worried about their identities or, well, we can't film in the location because it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> like, well, then maybe we don't have a video. Yeah. You know, yep. it's it we you know the, the show piece. <laughs> yeah the show don't tell aspect of a video is a, is um, a cliche but it's a cliche because it's true. true and and talking people down and telling them why why the idea is a bad idea is is super important particularly helpful if you can get ahead of them before they've already sold their boss on it yeah definitely. you know because then when everybody's like yeah we're gonna do this and it's gonna be amazing and then you have to be the person to go in to say let me manage uh, expectations yeah. here. No, definitely. Yeah, we can do it the way you want to do it, but it's probably not going to be great. Yeah, you know. No, well, th- thanks, Nick. I think it's been been great talking to you, and uh, definitely pull a lot from that that conversation, and hopefully a lot of key takeaways, you know, for listeners. As I know, they go into that process of of trying to convince people to to do more creative stuff, and and half the battle isn't in your skill set of can you produce something, is can you get other people on board with it and get them uh, happy, excited about it. So I think just talking through that stuff was just really helpful for me and I'm sure it'll be, be helpful for, for listeners as well. So, uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like I need to take a step back cause I've been talking about a lot of examples, but I, I think the, the, I think the key issues, if you're trying to get people to buy in on anything, you're trying to have a good, a good process. You need to find out where people's pain points are and where they're where they're afraid. You know, I don't think that people want to use the word afraid or fear or cowardice or anything. But, but people do have pain points, yeah. Yeah, but you know, find find places where you know where they they can't or don't feel like they can be creative because of X, um, because the timeline's super short, or because the stakes are too high for me to take a risk, or because I'm not sure if my boss would be on board. And if you can find out the why they're not willing to engage in a, in a good creative collaborative process and try to address those, solve those and, and, and push for uh, a, a truthful, uncompromising, but collaborative experience. I think that everything goes well. So, no, thanks. Yeah. So if people want to, to get a hold of you or see some of the work, what would be the best way? Is it through going oh. through Coral Noak? Or? Oh man, uh, it's all kind of scattered all over the place. Uh, let me think about it. And I'll, I'll, okay, uh, all right, I can add that in later. So. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I know this is the first podcast uh, recorded in the the Middle East. Here we are at a hotel in Jerusalem, not far away from Old City, and uh, so I know kind of funny that we had to travel. Uh, 
6,000 miles away to, to record a podcast, but I guess we had the time and uh, your flight's not for another six, seven hours, so it worked out well. Yeah, it's amazing how bad weather and uh, and terrorist attacks can really bring people together in a <laughs> hotel room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, well, sounds good. Oh, thanks so much, Nick. Yeah, take care. That wraps up another episode of No Fat Cats, where we help high-performing creative teams get even better. I really enjoyed hearing from Nick and his journey and just the, the process he's taken is no one's journey is ever the same. And while we can't necessarily replicate in your, our personal lives someone else's journey, we can always pull tips, things that they did that we can really learn from and take those recommendations and apply it to our lives. And so I hope you're able to pull some of those things away. And just when it comes to how do you get people on board? How do you get people excited? How do you communicate what you're wanting to do? And how do you make sure that you never under communicate as the irony of it is that creative projects are always in essence built on communication they're communication products but it's bad communication that can definitely derail them from the very beginning so until next time have a good one